You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Frankie. Hey, Adam. Special guest time. Yes. Well, Aren't we lucky? We've we got are. a lovely guest coming on. We've just finished our lovely chat with her and um, it was a very, very cool episode. And spoiler alert, talking about one of the good ones, aren't we? Uh, Wasp's mm-hmm. Nest is the treat coming up today. A lot of buzz around this one. <laughs> Had to happen. Starring yes. uh, one of TV's biggest names as well. It's, um, I mean, we know we tend to point out when a famous face makes an appearance in a Boire episode, but uh, I think this is one that everyone will know no matter where you are in the world. Big, big name coming up. Before we get into the episode, do we have any correspondence this time? We sure do. Let me open up some things. As before every episode, I always go on our little social channels and say, hey, has Mm. anyone got anything they want us to say or read out? Uh, And we've got some messages. So we had an email from Lewis and he says, subject line, love the podcast. Strong start. (laughs) (laughs) I will open this email. You you know how to get read out. (laughs) Yes, 100% correct. Just don't mention reality records and you'll be fine. (laughs) I'm still trying to get us on there. It's a, it's trying to break it. Um, Lewis says, Hi both. Have been listening to the show ever since the first podcast and love the dynamic that you two have. Your passion for the show is so clear. I have a few quick questions for you. So are you ready for some few quick Go questions? Yeah. Uh, number one, what would you say is the best of the short story based episodes and which is the best of the full book based episodes? I think I will actually <laughs> tell you what my favourite short story episode is before the end of this episode. Let's just say that. Yeah, um, I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> yeah. Same same one, do you think? I think so. After this. Yeah, definitely. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, you will find that answer out later from both of us. Full length one. I'm a fan of the big four. That That's my favorite Poirot novel as well. I, I know it, it's no one else's. And I've said this many times. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I like the episodic sort of anthology kind of feel to it. And the fact that he solves lots of different little crimes. I think Mark Gatiss did a fantastic job when he adapted it. So uh, big four. Good choice. Oh, it's tough. There are some, obviously, the biggies. We could do like Death on the Nile mm. and, and you know, Man the Orient Express and things. I do love those. Uh, I actually do really enjoy uh, the uh, Mystery of the Blue Train very much, mm. uh, which we talked a bit about in the last episode. Uh, they're all pretty good. I'm going to mm. say it. Um, and also, one of my favourite adaptations, actually, I think, is probably The Labours of Hercule. Mm. Hercules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our namesake. Because it's so good. It's mm. It was one of the last ones, and God damn, it was it was beautiful. It was perfect. I really, really loved that one. And it's come back really to it a lot. crazy. Because I always wondered how they were going to do that. Because mm. if you haven't read the book, the book is basically 12, is it 12 short stories? They've got this thread running through them that links them all. And I was yeah. always wondering how they're going to adapt that. And they did it in one episode, didn't they? They kind of, yep. yeah, it was very cleverly done. We'll get to that one uh, in the future. Oh, I, I must also give end. a quick shout out for, yeah, because I know. 
Uh, I must give a quick shout out for all the ABC murders as well. Was, oh God, was, yes, of course. Uh, oh, there's so many good ones. Mm. God damn it, it's a great the Halloween <laughs> party. Oh, anyway, um, so many goodies. Don't and you mean that, a haunting in Venice? I'm gonna set fire to you. <laughs> <laughs> you keep this up. Unbelievable. So sassy today. My God. Um, okay. Second question: Do you think that the short story or the full book-based episodes are better on the whole? I, I, I always return to the shorter ones. Yes. I love the longer ones, don't get me wrong, but sometimes I'm just not in the mood for an hour and 40 minutes, especially when they're on a darker theme, shall we say? Like the later yes. ones tend to get very, very soul-searching, and I'm not always in the mood for that. But I think Sad Cypress, Five Little Pigs, they're all fantastic, but I'm oh. not always in the mood for them. Whereas the first sort of few seasons of Poirot, when it's Jap and Hastings and Lemon and Poirot together, I can put those on all day long on a loop and just absolutely dive in and out. I love it. Yeah, I, I do. I love them both. But as you say, it's very much dependent on mood uh, because, mm-hmm. yeah, if, you've, if you're feeling a bit depressed and you want to go a bit dark with it, then the long ones are great. And actually, I recently, uh, when I was in Harrogate, actually, when I the brief time I was in my hotel room, watched um, Murder in Mesopotamia and mm, the hollow and mm. ones like that and they are it is like there are there are great like the whole canon is obviously perfect but, um, but yeah if you're in a mood for like a nice little sunday afternoon cheer up then you can't really beat the short ones but mm. uh yeah, i like the fact you can get like in, in the same running time as a long one you can get three short ones in so I, I kind yeah of love that. that's true that is true <laughs> uh but well, that bodes well for the rest of this series of show. <laughs> we're coming Sorry, to Ryan. the end of them as well i mean isn't it the end of this season is when the i think there's a they, few more isn't there yeah but i think i think by the end of this season you can definitely see the end in sight can't you um, it, it gets it gets way more drawn out Stay with us, everyone. We'll get through it together. (laughs) Uh, And number three, would you ever like to see books written about when Poirot was in the Belgian police? Maybe about one when he and Hastings first met. Yeah, I think we talked about that last episode, didn't we? Yeah, well, focused on his earlier career yeah not when he was in the belgian police and actually there's mm. a couple of episodes coming up where we flash back to when he was in the belgian police so we mm. get a little, little, little taste coming up yeah but, um, chocolate box is coming up yes yeah mm, i'm looking forward to that one, one. yeah yes. I mean, yeah i'd love to i'd love to know i would love to see him as a complete novice without this deductive genius being trained yeah. or finding his genius through the cases that he solves as yeah. a policeman i think that would be really interesting to watch and also you could see him picking up his ocd-ness and his fastidiousness <laughs> and his sense of style yes. it would love it'd be lovely to see him turn from a rough diamond into the the gemstone that we all adore and actually so what you've said before i would love to see young poirot like mm. school poirot uh, yeah. and see yeah that would be really really fun to see um mm. they should make that Come on, Netflix, <laughs> do that. Uh, and Lewis ends the email by saying, thank you for being the source of a huge amount of entertainment over the past few months. Best wishes, Lewis. Aww. Thanks, Lewis. Very nice. Very nice. We have some more really sweet messages coming up. So brace yourself for some, get a bit of toothache coming on because we're going to get a bit sugary sweet here uh, <laughs> with a lovely message from our good friend, Katie, regular film uh-huh. club attendee. Yeah. Uh, she says, just finished the Mysterious Affair at Styles episode and just want to say how lovely you both are and how much I enjoy listening to you. It's Aww. perfect that the two of you love Poirot so much and that you jive so perfectly with each other. Sending you thanks and love. Thanks, Katie. Isn't that nice? <laughs> oh, so cute and sweet of her. Oh. Yeah. Uh, another lovely message from, well, this one, this, we, okay, we're going to get a bit bumpy now. So here we go. From lovely uh, Sarah on, on Instagram, Sybil St. Jude. She says, hi all. Just a little note for Frankie regarding KB or he who, shall, who must not be named. 
you know what we're talking about. I, uh, I finally saw Murder in the Orient Express. It was on telly and it was genuinely one of the worst films I've seen. It triggered mild asthma. I was so angry. <laughs> And my girlfriend had to put up with my ranting about how Poirot wouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, oh, I, dear. I had thought to bore you both senseless with an email critique of the whole film, but then thought, no, let Frankie stay unsullied by the details of the travesty. For those who have deliberately resisted seeing it because their instincts tell them not to, you're correct. I wish I'd listened to mine and changed the channel. I liked it. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. You're trying to wind me up and I'm not going to let it happen. Uh, yeah. It's weird how they turned Murder on the Orient Express into an action film. I just, that's my, that's my entire review. It's just weird yeah. that they even decided to do that. I agree. Moving on. Yes. I hate to say I was right all along, but I don't actually. I love to say that because I was right all along. Um <laughs> Uh, we also had a message from, okay, so this one is from Josh on Instagram as well. He says, sorry for non-fluffy question, but I wonder if it's just me that notices a bit of anti-Semitism in Poirot sometimes directed at him. Like the jewellery fence in the last episode, who was asking, what are you, Montenegrin? There's definitely, obviously, we know that Poirot is very much other throughout the show and i i think maybe there are kind of implications i guess if we consider the time period that this was set during the era with which it was set there would yeah, have been a lot of anti-semitism of- so possibly um i i don't think i think it's more that he's just other and he's foreign and yeah. maybe not so much the anti-semitism i mean he's constantly being prejudiced against by yes british society in all its classes isn't he because they see him as just as you say, other. So they just tend to lump him in with people they don't like who are alien to them, Um, whether it's people of a certain faith or people of a certain nationality. He's just one of them, isn't he? So um, in that that respect, I guess so. I didn't didn't particularly pick up on the anti-Semitism in that comment, but I don't really know what that's referring to in terms of being Montenegro, and I do apologise if I've upset (laughs) by being ignorant of that, but... Yeah. yeah, no, so. it's a tr- it's a tricky one, but um, it's very very possible, Josh, and you know mm. you're clearly far more perceptive than Adam and I. <laughs> so <laughs> good work. Uh, a nice comment as well from Madhusery fourteen on Instagram. She just said, cool. "Just that you always make me smile when you're not making me laugh. This podcast is a joy." So that's oh, sweet. Thank you. That's nice. Nice. And last <laughs> but not least, uh, a. A question from William Hussey on Twitter. And he says, he's got a challenge for us. Let's imagine ITV never commissioned Poirot in the late 80s. (gasps) My heart. Um, (laughs) Part of me just dissolved into ash. Uh, Let's say they started the whole venture now. Who would we cast as the White Haven for? David Suchet, Hugh Fresh. (laughs) (laughs) That's cheating a little bit. So so William has submitted his. He says, for Poirot, Rory Kinnear. For Hastings, Richard Armitage. And for Miss Lemon, Michelle Dockery from Downton Abbey. And he's Mm. struggling for Jap. So... I'd say Daniel Mays for Jap. Maybe. Mm. Um, Michelle Docker is a good call, actually, for Miss Lemon. Yeah. She definitely, she definitely has the bearing. I just think that cast is unrepeatable. I don't... Yeah. I, don't. I do think Richard Armitage is probably too suave, potentially, to pay Hastings, because he's, he's yeah. more just charming. Um, it's very yeah, hard, think, this question, William. <laughs> yeah, really hard. 
Might be an answer. Yeah, Rory Kinnear be a decent Poirot. I mean, I, it, it depends because David Suchet, I don't know. I, I would have cast him as Poirot yeah. unless unless you'd be able to see him go, can you do a Poirot? And all of a sudden he pulls this impression out and you go, whoa, hang on a minute. Yeah, you're Poirot. Yeah. It's really hard to sort of imagine anyone with that level of accent work and yes. bearing. Because he doesn't, you know, he's not Poirot when he's not playing the character, is he? You see him in no, other things and you go, different. there's nothing like him. So yeah. um, Poirot's like another worldly character. So all we're trying to do is come up with someone who looks vaguely like him and... Um, or really. just is just good at transforming and disappearing into characters like that. Yeah. I'm going to stick with my Daniel Mays for, for Jap because I think he's a good... Or Eddie Marsan yeah. or someone like that, you know. Um, uh, Michelle Docker is a good call. Mm. Oh, Timothy Spall. Timothy Spall would be a good Poirot. Quite old, mm. though, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Like, David Suchet was 36, wasn't he, when they started this? Was he? Jesus. He's a year mm. younger than me. Wow. That's fascinating. And then also, I, if I'm going to go with the spools, I'm going to throw in Rafe. He can play um, Hastings. Mm. He'd be fun. I'll tell yeah. you what, instead of us wasting time and up, why don't we throw it open? <laughs> Who would be your ideal casting call for a new Poirot series if they were going to reboot the whole thing or if the series in the 80s had never been made? Who would you cast as the way yes. before? I'd love and to hear your suggestions. We'll hold a casting event and we'll just pl- give everyone a pound coin as they enter and say. <laughs> <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> You're in. <laughs> and you can keep that. We don't want it back. Thank you. <laughs> well, th- those were all of the, the questions we had submitted this week. Fabulous as ever. And if you'd like to submit a question, you can do so via email at bonjour at thelaboursofercule.com or through the socials. And um, enough of you seem to be submitting that we don't need to keep telling you what they are. Just look for <laughs> Labours of Hercule podcast on Instagram, threads, X, or uh, <laughs> anywhere else that we may be. And uh, thank you very much. Yes, that <laughs> reminds me. I did listen to your new little ending that you popped on the end of the podcast there. I, right. First, I didn't even notice a difference, to be honest. I thought it was me because your <laughs> female <laughs> voice... <laughs> Is that how I sound? Uh, clearly, nice. Matilda's notes have been paying off. Um, and yeah, top notch. Uh, well done. Good job. I bet everyone's just happy to not hear me. So good job. Well, they'll hear you on this one. So. Sorry. <laughs> but anyway, enough of, enough of just us. Let's get a guest on and let's talk about yeah. the episode. Um, we have quite 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 a ride coming up. We, we talked for a very long time, but for good reason, because there's a lot to cover in this one. And I uh, hope you enjoy it. Come along with us now as we meet Therese for our conversation about Wasp's Nest. Buzz, buzz. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hello, everyone. Sorry, hello, Adam's here too. (laughs) That level of professionalism (laughs) that you've all come to expect from the Labours of Hercule. Uh, But we are joined by a very special guest. Welcome, everyone, to Therese Keating. Hello. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I will try and be special for you. You You don't need to try. Aww. Indeed. <laughs> so, Therese uh, and I met about a year ago now, Therese. It'll almost be a year. Yeah. Not that I've marked it in my calendar or anything. <laughs> uh, as an <a> anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> but we met at Capital Crime because Therese has a very interesting job in publishing. And Therese actually made probably my whole year when you came over. I was like, you're Frankie from the Labours of Hercule podcast. And you went, oh my God, how did I recognise me? Well, this is an audio medium. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> Was I talking very loudly about Poirot, which is very highly likely. It's true. I just no, followed no. the word, the star. 
<laughs> she was talking about day drinking i expect weren't you <laughs> <laughs> exactly that but i mean you made me look very cool i think i was chatting to tom wood at the time and you came over like i listened to your podcast i was like oh yeah another listener this all yeah, the time no, no my deal. god another one <laughs> in the wild check, by the way. <laughs> oh sorry jesus Therese, not on camera not on audio jesus um Same yeah world. so <laughs> and then we saw each other again at Harrogate where you had a wonderful event on that I popped along to for some cake and some book stuff. It was awesome. So yeah, good to have you with us. Here we are. You know, what do you do in publishing? Um, so I am a senior commissioning editor at Raven Books, which is a sort of crime, thriller, gothic, basically anything death adjacent imprint. So I tell authors to put more murders in their books for a living, which is pretty much the dream. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when it comes to Agatha Christie, big fan, I'm assuming. I've seen the walls oh. of your office now and can attest to the fact that you uh, like to adorn the place. But what's That's your Christery? Oh, history. <laughs> I was about to say that. Well done, Adam. History of history is, uh, I think, probably the um, Death on the Nile, the old Peter Ustinov, watching mm. that at some kind of very young age before I really realised <laughs> what. Agatha Christie was or anything like that and just remembering two very clear details which was one the gunshots in mm. in the lounge suddenly realized I probably shouldn't do spoilers and no. also David Niven <laughs> skewering a cobra in a bathroom which yes! is really what every film should have is that um, the snake or was he just really drinking the beer like quite fast <laughs> <laughs> or it's a euphemism that's how it goes yeah, no. Spearing the cobra. <laughs> uh, that is a classic. I love that film. Yeah. I wonder if we, Adam, should we do this the films one? Well, not not all the films, because you mm. know, but the uh, the better films, the earlier. If films. you're gonna do the films, you've got to do them all. I don't think you can um, Yeah, sorry. We'll you have to sit through them all. <laughs> have you seen like the nineteen thirties Christie films? Like Lord Edward Dies and things like that. Really no. bad ones. Do you know that um actually the the um episode we're doing today, Wasp's Nest, was Adaptive television in 1937. Did you know? Wow. One of the first TV broadcasts on the BBC, and it was only broadcast in London because that was the only place you could get TV signals at the time. And um, Agatha Christie herself adapted Wasp's Nest as this one off, like, radio, TV play. Um, and there was this actor, a really famous actor called Francis L. Sullivan, had a really, like, great big chin and uh, very distinctive <laughs> looking. And he played Poirot, first, uh, first TV Poirot ever. And it was this story. Wow. I didn't know that. Mm. It's been lost for, you know, ever since they didn't record things back in those days. But uh, the script, you can find the script out there and it's written by Christy herself. So if you want to do it, well, we could recreate it or something. Maybe. <gasps> oh, that would be fun. <laughs> uh, I can do a good buzz, buzzing noise. <laughs> I, I can be wasps. I can buzz. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us, Therese. And now you you requested this episode specifically to be on. Uh, why was that? Well, I was watching it, funnily enough, after I got back from Harrogate. So after a very long uh, car journey, mm. I crawled in, in the, into the house, into the shower, back out the shower in front of the telly. I, was like, I need to, I need some fun. And just stuck that one on and then realised that it's not one I watch very often, but mm. realised that it, seems to manage to bring in so many of the things that the TV show does so well when it adapts Christie. So I didn't know about the TV play, but I know the short story that I guess she wrote up after. And it's very, very slight, and there's not much to it. And then seeing what the TV show has added and the way that they just seem to have gone out of their way to add all the kind of fan service elements, basically, uh, mm. I really enjoyed. Um, and then I think I said to you, Frankie, as well, like my 
partner who is very good in many, many ways, but is also um, a, fun, a big hobby guy, a big hobby and parcels guy. So <laughs> there was a certain moment in the episode that I just felt like deep down in my soul. <laughs> <laughs> hobby and parcel magazine that would be his subscription of choice yeah, yeah. it comes twice weekly it really stacks up in the fall are you trying to oh. get them to uh, add more murders always if, if you if you're working you know, with that magazine at any time could you get them to add more murders uh, hobbies and, try. Yeah. yeah murdering parcel avalanche hobby. yeah you know, there must be plenty of annoying train set collectors out there you're talking about my yeah. husband. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was just about to say you need an axe in the head, but I won't now. Oh. So, <laughs> well, not on, not when it's recorded, anyway. Um, well, shall we get buzzing? What are the Whitehaven four up to? Oh, it's a cracking start to this episode, I have to say, where we meet Poirot, Jaff and Hastings hanging out outside Marble Hill Underground, waiting for the elusive Mrs. Jap. Yeah, uh, is... Never. No. Mm. She's like Maris in Frasier. Like you don't you never see her, but the legend of her makes it actually more interesting. It's I think. like that guy over the fence in Home Improvement, isn't it? He's like <laughs> you, you almost get a tease every time. It's like, oh she'd be along in a second and then Poirot has to run off to a it's such a shame it's arnos yeah. grove station isn't it i remember getting off there and seeing it and then when i rewatched this episode i was like oh i've been there and i was like i'm sure it's not called marble hill so i did a bit of research yeah the magic the magic of television <laughs> but beautiful art deco station for the bits that we see in yeah, those shots my god the inside is incredible mm, real nice and uh while all that's going on poor jap has got <laughs> jap's stomach is giving him jip <laughs> Jip jap. Yeah, Spell that. Or Spell that stuff. how you would like. <laughs> I can't. Um, uh, yeah, he's but... like the only man who's ever needed hospital treatment over a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Very delicate flower. Well, he's a sensitive flower. Yeah. I don't believe he's the only man either. That's a load of rubbish. Men are very delicate creatures who need lots of love and care. <laughs> I feel seen. Yeah. <laughs> I suspect eating a crab mayonnaise sandwich, which can't have originated anywhere near the sea might have had something to do with it as well so, <laughs> where are you getting crab in arnos grove as it turns out jap come on yeah <laughs> tea stand um, yeah so he uh, they're waiting at the train station for mrs jap because they're all off to a garden fate together um, and poirot is very irritable isn't he oh, you know what he's like when he hasn't had a case for a few weeks i thought a nice afternoon at a garden fate might cheer him up a bit taxi about the only thing that's going to cheer him up today is the discovery of a body in the lucky dip. <laughs> Much like you, Therese, Poirot would like some more murders in to improve his life because he's very bored at the moment, as we heard. So more murders always. Uh, that line that Chap delivers about discovery of the body in the lucky dip, I enjoyed very much. <laughs> I never noticed until now that David Renwick wrote a load of these. Um, yes. I'm also a big Jonathan Creek fan. But... It yes. makes complete sense because David Romick is utterly obsessed with garden fates. You will be mm. amazed how many... I don't know if he has shares in a coconut shy or what, but <laughs> they're everywhere. Would, be... would you say his fate is sealed? I mean, oh, did everyone's, did everyone's cameras freeze at the same time? That was, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> there must be a couple in one foot in the grave as well. Oh, I'm sure... Oh, 
My God. I, there must be a scene where he throws a coconut, misses, and goes, I can't believe it. Anyway. Don't believe it. <laughs> she always said, I don't believe it. Literally the lie. Sorry. I cannot believe this. <laughs> I can't get over this. <laughs> Surely this can't be happening. But meanwhile, while this is going on, <laughs> Hastings is distracted because he's seen a model in a car. I say, isn't that Hastings? That fashion The girl driving the car. This is great, this moment, because all we see is this fleeting image of this car racing around the corner. The woman's wearing a headscarf and she has great dark glasses on. And somehow, for these four square inches of face, he can see, there's that model. From the cover of Vogue. How the hell did he know? You know what he's up to, looking at newsstands in his uh, spare time, studying the covers. He gets into the articles. Mm. Yes, of course. <laughs> I'm buying some lingerie for my grandmother. The it's quite fell open on that page. He's a bit he's a bit troublesome in this, I found. Yes. Yeah. He's only like yeah. one hop, skip and a jump before he's upskirting at one point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is amazing. unsolicited, un, un uh, what's the word? But he's just taking photos of people of taking photos of people without their permission. That ain't cool. Where was uh, the other night Princess Diana died? Whoa. <laughs> no. Whoa, the Lagonda would never have kept up. <laughs> you should have been here questioning Hugh Fraser instead of us. Because, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a bit of a left field for the interview. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a nice interview, but now we're gonna get into the hard hitting journalism. Magic yeah. <laughs> good talk now. <laughs> Where were you when Kennedy was short? Yeah, so on. <laughs> anyway, it's... Hastings doesn't follow her yet, but the camera follows the model as she's driving along the countryside, beautiful, lovely countryside, and when she pulls up at a house and we see a very mysterious, angry-looking man with the coolest, me- most metal cane I've ever mm. seen in my life, and I need it. I need a skull cane. won't reveal yet what this man's profession is but it's kind of no. sick when uh, you do <laughs> it really is. Right. also it looks like he's been hunting in Lilliput or something and he's like cap- <laughs> the skull, put it on his thing he's like a cross between an undertaker and the predator he's like a child catcher <laughs> kind of <Yeah>. vibe <laughs> to him uh, or That's a child great. catcher combined with the the guy in Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory who's like trying to encourage the kids to give the sweet over. Slugworth. You know? <laughs> yes, Slugworth. He's got Slugworth vibes, but very metal and very, very cool cane. I like a yeah, style. Absolutely. Tom Hastings into handing over a sweet recipe, couldn't he? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, oh goodness. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of keeping it to myself, old boy. There you are. <laughs> Everlasting gobstopper. Yeah. We get our first glimpse at the house, too. And mm. the house is. That's house goals. Nice. Thinking about getting one of those like car kits, but for my house. <laughs> So it looks like my house. My house. Like, <laughs> but like, like in a, like a, um, a stage production, it's going to cover yeah, the front. A great big picture of MDS. the house. Just standing <laughs> all sides. That looked nice. great in the middle of my Wiltshire town. With just loads of wasps spurting out of it every three seconds. you like hell, isn't it, on earth? We arrive at the beautiful house, you say, and we now, the model, we keep calling her the model, we find out her name is Molly Dean. So Molly creeps up on John Harrison, in the, who's working in the garden, who's the owner of this beautiful house, and they are due to be married at some point. And uh, <laughs> yes, they seem very close and very lovey-dovey. And off to the fate they go, where Poirot and Hastings have also arrived. And Hastings 
seeing all these fantastic sights around him, wishes that he'd bought the 150. There she is again. It is her. Molly, um, what's her name? Dean. The fashion model. I wish I brought the 150 with me now. The new toy. I give it to perhaps three weeks. Generous. <laughs> yes. Has <laughs> your, uh, your partner got any hobbies, Therese? Uh, well, he plays guitar and bass. Two weeks? I'm sure there have been other things. Perhaps three. How about you? Do you have any hobbies? Apart from adding murder to places where... Less so, less so. I tend to do a lot of reading and then occasionally I get to read stuff I actually want to read as opposed to stuff that I need to read for work. And then the rest of the time you sort of avoid books with a like the plague so, <laughs> so just go outside and be not where books are i i don't know how you do it because i struggle enough with, with with the podcast to read other books other than the ones i need to read for the podcast i don't know how you do it if that's your full-on job you just must never get a break from it yeah basically yeah you don't yeah so you, you kind of get a bit of a head start because you get to read lots of stuff before it's published so yeah theoretically i have read some stuff that will turn up in 2025 and everyone normal people will get to read it then but like anything that's out right now I'm like, oh yeah that was good maybe in five years has it, has it really changed the way you read for fun or read for pleasure now there's a, probably a bit that you can't really switch off but um only i feel like it's only to the level that people who read a lot get to anyway uh, embarrassingly i very 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 rarely guess the murderers if i'm reading a fine <laughs> book um that is not a skill i seem to have developed so mm. At least well, that's, that's a writer's insane. dream. Yeah, it's great. That's, I still get that's what they want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Molly has been dragged off around the corner by the Fates clown. Who is this? It's a monobrowed, very young Peter Capaldi. Pe- Peter Capaldi. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. <laughs> he, they, I have to say, these two men, John and Claude, look very similar. I mean, granted, the clown makeup really helps to differentiate. I would say, mm-hmm. if he could keep that on the whole thing, <laughs> that would really help me out, apparently. But uh, yeah, Peter Capaldi grabs Molly, and she seems very unhappy about it, and it's a bit of a, a, a tense moment that she flees from and bumps into. John, her fiance is at the fay. Everything's yeah. fine, though. Don't worry about that thing that happened behind look the scenes. Look who I found. Yeah, look who oh, It's Claude. Yay, yay. Oh, darling. Oh, I thought you'd got lost. Look who I just ran into. Is that you under there, Claude? You didn't tell me you were going into politics. <laughs> you know, you're just the man I wanted to see. You know that nest of wasps you cleared out for me last summer? They're back again with a vengeance this time. Thousands of the blighters driving me absolutely potty in their garden. Oh, right, you are. I'll see what I can do. All right, if I pop round... Friday morning. Fine. Uh, soon transpires that there's a kind of a love triangle thing going on between the Molly used to be engaged to Claude, um, played by Peter Capaldi, who I think has the most hair I've ever seen on a human being in this episode. It's like, you know, when you light a match and you see like this huge... It is. And, and the brow to match. It's just one long connecting strand from his brows to his hair. It's just <laughs> a ball of it. But it, he pulls it off. It works for him. So basically what's happened is that Molly was engaged to Claude Langton, played by Peter Capaldi, until about a year ago. And then she found love in the arms of John Harrison, who's her current fiancé. And uh, try as they might. I mean, you can't help but notice there's a slight air of tension between them. <laughs> Everyone's just like, no, we're all best friends. This is absolutely fine. No problems no here whatsoever. Anything. No, not here. No. <laughs> Especially when John is effectively treating Claude like his gardener. When he's like, come and sort mm. the wasp problem out. 
uh don't touch my wife but if you could sort the wasps that would be top that would be great thank you uh so yeah it's a bit of a weird vibe going on they no one seems it all seems to be very present and everyone else around them seems to notice it but they they, they seem to kind of try and ignore it as much as possible it feels like because Poirot picks up on it pretty quick that there's something weird in this whole thing and actually this whole episode has a bit of a spooky not spooky but there's a kind of implied mysterious vibe to it because there's the whole thing about the fortune teller and Poirot is reading tea leaves and all sorts mm. of weird stuff that you would think that's not very Poirot like but he's uh... it definitely has a it's got a like a folk horror vibe almost it's like you, there's lots of nature shots and there's tea yeah, readings true. and tassiography and that kind of thing and there's something bubbling underneath I mean I have a huge opinion on this show and which we'll get into later on but um, I did think to myself, it's very to say the Wicker Man conjures the wrong kind of thing. But but you know when you walk into an environment and there's something wrong with it, it's like seeing the world through a mirror. It's got a crack in it. You know, there's something weird about it. It definitely manages to capture that thing where um, summer in Britain can be unbelievably sinister. Yeah, where everything's like very very green and it should be very mm. happy, but the sky is strangely grey and there are lots of sort of local yokels playing strange games in the background. And maybe that's why there's a fate. Or maybe that's just Renwick just Absolutely. can't stay away. <laughs> and you have and then like wasps everywhere. And then wasps, which are kind of constant humming as well. That constant yes. Humming. yes, the very and sinister the kind of fizz buzzing of wasps. <laughs> wasps, who we all know, let's be honest, our natures are nature's <laughs> um, and they, in this in particular, they are an absolute. Uh, skirt. There, there is a big problem. There's a big wasp problem. I don't know if you got that from the title of the episode. Mm. Uh, I feel particularly passionate about my hatred of wasps, so I can relate to Poirot very much in this one in particular. Have you guys ever been stung by wasp? Yes. Many times. Yeah, me too. I, I think, like you guys were saying, I enjoy that kind of old traditional folky element, and it can often be very quaint and cute. I often go to one in uh, the New Forest every year, often, so once a year, uh, and mm. it's got like best vegetable competition and flower arranging and that kind of stuff. And that's really fun and quaint, but it would be a lot more fun if there was like a sinister murderous element bubbling through it like this. Anyway, <laughs> while all this is going on, turns out John and Poirot are old friends and they bump into each other, reconnect, and he introduces Poirot to Molly, his lovely fiance, and... <laughs> there's the brilliant moment we find out that John is a writer uh, not of murders but of philosophy and quite big ideas and things yeah. and Hastings you've had published now come here. three books oh really what were they called I might have read one well let's see the first was dualism and determinism an exploration of classical platonic philosophy then there was Aristotelian ethics a short guide to the metaphysical works of Aristotle oh, Monsieur Poirot you read tea leaves Molly notices that Poirot is reading Jap's tea leaves and um, offers her own teacup I love the first question that Poirot does because he tips it out makes her sit down does all the things and then he sort of tips it out and has a swirl doesn't he and he looks in and he says Mademoiselle only you have drunk from this cup yes <laughs> like yes. yeah Yes, why? And he's like, you know, I just, you know, found a man's footprints at the bottom. That's like, <laughs> you find out later. <laughs> Do you think that anyone, like, is she the only person that's ever used this cup in her entire, <laughs> entire existence? In which case, they need to be like, you need to talk to the person that's washed these cups because they've done a terrible job. This is disgusting. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't, I don't understand tea leaf reading. I thought that, but um, so yeah. I looked it up, and apparently the energy that you project when you're drinking somehow <laughs> causes the tea leaves to set in certain shapes of things that you're thinking about. So it's like if you're worried about love, you might see like a heart shape in the bottom. If, when Poirot <laughs> stirs into her cup, I reckon Molly was really concerned about all the dog poo in her garden because that's literally <laughs> all I could see. In the <laughs> 
Maybe, but that's not what he says, is it? He sees dark, looming clouds. Of course, I may be quite wrong. I hope that I am. But I see looming the dark clouds. And ah, the troubled waters. Have you had yours, Red Adam? No, but I mean, my head of year said I would amount to nothing, and that came true. So I'm assuming there's something in it. <laughs> That's not even true, is it? Because you're doing very well. Does he have a podcast? No, we exactly. know of. After that ominous reading, we talk about Jap. I, I think the direction in this all the way through is really amazing. The shots from inside the beehive, from inside the wasp nest. Um, <laughs> hence the title, Adam. Um, the shots from inside the um, the wasp's nest that are out looking at the world around you, and and just the whole, as you say, the whole hum of it, and the, the sinister summer. It's all sunsets and everything. But there's this moment where Capaldi is messing around with the children, and he fires like this fake gun into the air, and at that moment, Jap just cries out in agony because this crab mayonnaise sandwich has finally dissolved his kidneys. <laughs> it's really, it's really well done. appendicitis by the way i don't think it's all crab mayo right (laughs) okay yeah good because they never actually say that they just imply that he has an operation and they never actually Mm. say your appendix but i think hastings talks about when he has when he's doing his best bedside manner he talks about when he had his appendix out it was horrible he said when he had his operation they never say appendix i I listened out for it but poor old poor old jap has we think some sort of appendix issue we assume but he's rushed to hospital and he has to have an operation and Hastings as always has soothing words of comfort to make him feel better. (laughs) Well I hope it's not too much of an ordeal old chap. When I had mine out it was absolute hell. For a week afterwards I got this stabbing pain all down my right hand side. Hastings, Hastings. I think the chief inspector would like now the little rest. Poirot is making dark mutterings that, that something is afoot. And he calls Hastings' attention to the lipstick on the cup. You did see something in Molly Dean's cup, though, didn't you? It wasn't tea leaves. Hastings, I wonder if you can recall what was the colour of lipstick Mademoiselle Dean was wearing this afternoon. Uh, rather pale pink, I think. It matched her scarf. D'accord. But when I examine closely the teacup, I see not only the traces of the pink lipstick, but that also of another colour. The deep bright red obviously hastings did because he is a fashion maven and is up with all the trends it's matched her scarf yeah what color was she wearing so it was very beautiful coral pink that matches her scarf <laughs> and like, oh, that, that was not the color of lipstick on the cup claude has come to the summer house i'm going to call it the summer house because it looks like a summer house and he it's is summary. getting rid of the wasps and he's being watched from the house by Molly, who's watching him very intently as he sprays the wasps with this petrol mixture that he's brought. And it doesn't seem to be doing much. No luck with the petrol, I'm afraid. They're hardy little devils. I'll have to try them with something stronger. Maybe I'll pop back and give it another go Wednesday evening. There's a few points in the episode where John is quite brooding, quite sad. Like he's looking in the mirror a lot. He's looking at his diary a lot and flicking between dates and underlining a certain date and things. So uh, that's all kind of happening while Molly is watching him spray the wasps. Uh, But she's actually about to go out. She's going to go on a little drive. She's got a job interview. I assume that means like a modelling casting thing. Or she just fancies a change of career. No judgment. Good for Molly. Good for her to explore her options. But um, she's driving off to the north in her car. uh, And I keep calling him Peter Capaldi, but we should call him by his name. Claude uh, is 
is like, oh, hey, can I get a lift? She's like, uh, no, I'm going the opposite way to you. And it's a little bit uncomfortable, a bit awkward, but she jets off and leaves them to it. And Claude says, this this, this petrol is not killing these wasps. I'm going to have to come back with something stronger. Can I come back on Wednesday? And they, they say, yep. John gets a phone call from Molly. You see her screaming around the road. I mean, she's not exactly safe on the old... <laughs> wheels is she but she I can relate to, be, to that hmm, I've been in the car with you I, yes <laughs> need for speed <laughs> what are these other people doing on my road it does really annoy me actually yeah I do hate that in a word for her wonderful little zippy like woman about town driving soundtrack so cute yeah in, like in the Barbie film she's like yeah drive along have a exactly, good time yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes her seem even faster than she probably is going it's very fast woman fast car Nice. <laughs> I, yes. I like the old speed needle on that thing. It's like waggling between fifty and fifty-five, and that's it gets it can it can go to sixty if she really opens it up. <laughs> I feel like the elastic yeah. band that's powering it will snap if it goes too far over. <laughs> a few moments later, though, John gets a phone call. She's only gone and run it into a tree. I don't know what happened. The brakes just suddenly. I know. They say it's going to take till Monday to get the car back on the road. So, uh, well, I suppose I'll just have to stay here till then. So he yes. gets Fengal saying that I'm terribly sorry. I've driven into a tree and I won't be able to come home tonight for two, for two nights or something. It's like the weakest. Yeah, till Monday. Though, yeah, I'll be here till yeah. Monday because that's how long it takes to get my car fixed. So yes. John has to sort of take it on the chin and like it and off Molly goes. Poirot kind of points out it's a little bit weird that because because John checked Molly's car before she left. And it was fine. And she said, oh, the brakes weren't working. And that's why I hit that she wasn't being a woman driver, Adam, with your awful stereotype. She actually had a brake problem. No, you didn't have to. Uh, But so... (laughs) 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 Can make yourself sound amazing. Uh, But yeah, so... Poirot, that gives Poirot a little eyebrow raise moment. And he's like, oh, that's strange. Like, how, well, how come her brakes weren't working when John just checked them? That's a bit weird. Um, Therese, we're over to Whitehaven now. What's going on at Whitehaven? Because this is gold. Oh, they're all having a lovely time. Well, it's down to <laughs> Whitehaven 3, sadly. But um, yes. it's lemon, great lemon in this. Uh, it's off to her keep fit class. In, I must say, the least athletic looking outfit ever. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't do you any harm to try one or two exercises, Mr. Poirot. Use your vigour to keep your figure absurd. There's nothing wrong with the body of Poirot. In the peak of condition. And seemingly nothing to change into. So I don't know what this class actually involves. Like you see her come out with a little dinky handbag afterwards. And in a pencil well, skirt. Working, like, trainers in there. Yeah. yeah. To be fair, walking in a pencil skirt to tone your calf and thigh muscles, I mean, that is a workout in itself. So maybe it's that. that but are you good. okay hearing about this, Adam? Are you a bit hot under the collar hearing about Miss Lemon working out her thighs and calf muscles? What do you think? <laughs> I think it's good also, that we can't see below I the chest. Yeah, she's but she's also very kid. determined that Poirot goes with her, right? And uh, mm. Poirot is having none of this because there is nothing wrong with a figure of Poirot. <laughs> oh, um, peak condition. Peak condition. Now, have I got everything? Developer, fixer, glazing solution, stopwatch. Ban loads of parcels delivered to the flat uh, because mm. he's taken up photography. And he needs the bathroom for, this... I mean, for the photography, possibly also for the purposes. Uh, this is my favourite scene. This is just so written so brilliant. perfectly well. You're not planning to use the bathroom for the next half hour or so, are you, Poirot? 
Well, just let me check with my diary, Hastings. No, it would seem not. Good. If you need me, you know where I am. Hastings needs the bathroom, so I asked Barwa, are you, are you planning to use the bathroom for the next half hour? <laughs> and it's so good. It's like his cool. reaction. <laughs> Ass. He just sits there and you, just, you don't see him. Hastings doesn't see this. You see him with his hand on his hip and he sort of cocks his little hip and he goes, I don't know, Hastings. I will check my diary. No, it appears not. And just fantastic. Because Hastings is just like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks. As long as your diary says it's fine, great. <laughs> okay, great. Bye. <laughs> That is pure Renwick because that is actually like a Jonathan Creek comedy genius mm. style you moment. It's such a Victor Meldrew moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I cannot believe um, that you were using my bathroom. <laughs> it's followed by a scene yeah. where Miss Lemon coming out of her class calls taxi. Now, I had no idea there was such a thing as a taxi whistle. Taxi? You know, I was in central London yesterday and I could have <laughs> million times for taxis. It would have been fantastic. Do you get Taxi taxis whistles. in London? Yeah, I got one yesterday. Wow. Fancy yeah. boy. <laughs> yeah, black cabs. The rest of us just get the tube or we walk like normal people or the bus. But yeah, Ooh, all right. Yeah, I heard about you folks. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Man of the people, not like you. <laughs> I have you know, I got the tube all day. There's just one time I need sure. to get to. Yeah. But when, as Miss Lemon whistles for her taxi, she literally bumps into John, who is also getting a taxi, to Whitehaven. So they buddy up and get in the taxi together, mm. all the while being watched by our old metal friend, Mr. Skull Kane, who is watching mm. from the shadows. Dana Scully. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Skeletor. <laughs> Skeletor. Yes. <laughs> Hastings has finished his half hour in the bathroom and they are looking over the results. And Paro is this, he sees something and he's very upset by it. He says, no, 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 this is no good, this is no good. And Hastings is uh, concerned that, yeah, I think he might be right. I think he might be a bit overexposed. <laughs> so again, you said they're just operating on two completely different levels, basically the whole way through, and it's delightful. I got some interesting tonal variations there by using a low contrast paper. No, this is not good, Hastings. Oh, this is not good at all. Bit overexposed, you think? Oh, yeah, something is wrong in the photos. Of, is it them at the fate? Is it the three? Yeah. Molly, Claude, yeah. John at the fate? Mm. Something. So Poirot seems to be studying the faces through a magnifying glass and can see that something's not quite right between the three of them. What I really like is that they then go out for, oh, is it afternoon tea or something? And they have a nice afternoon tea. Now, this happens twice in the episode. Poirot says, no, this treat is on me. This treat is on me. And then hands the bill to Hastings. And Hastings like, pulls his yes. wallet out and pays it. Uh, no, 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 no. I invite you. This is my treat. Later on, there's another moment that happens. Is it in the, the chemist? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. No worries. How much is that? It just looks at Hastings and says, right Oh, this is basically like the queen and never carries cash on <laughs> Very much so. His job is to be his own personal walking flesh wallet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 I'd let him be my flesh wallet. <laughs> what? I mean, as you know, the um, only money Poro has on him is a pound coin and he can't. Yes, and it rarely lets exactly. that go. <laughs> yeah. yeah I he doesn't need change on that. <laughs> Perhaps you'd hear a clink if he went to yoga with Miss Lemon. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why he doesn't go? 
Yeah. That must be why. That's why he doesn't need to go. And that's why his body's in peak condition because those buns are steel. That coin is not going anywhere. It is mm. flat as a pancake in between those cheeks. Yeah. If you did the yawning dog, that'd be it. You'd hear the <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Is it that? Yeah. The yawning dog. <laughs> is that what it's called? Something dog, Downward dog. Downward dog. Okay. I like yawning dog. That's more appropriate. That's how I feel most of the time. Like a yawning dog. It's because my dog yawns so much. <laughs> They do. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this episode is full of tangents. Um, so then they cut to uh, Poirot and Hastings are visiting John and uh, Molly over at the house. And they're inspecting Molly's car, the damage to... It seems to just be the wing mirror that's a little bit damaged, but apparently under her knee is a bit scratched. But luckily, long hem lines are in this season. And mm. Hastings quite... That moment is so cute because you can tell that Hastings is a little bit like... <laughs> awkward. <laughs> Still, you weren't hurt. That's the main thing. Just a few scratches under my right knee. Good thing hemlines are low this year. Yes, quite. (laughs) (laughs) He knows all about women's fashion because he studies Vogue so uh, closely, Mm. of course. (laughs) While uh, they're doing that, uh, Poirot and John are in the garden and Poirot's having a little wander around as John warns him out of earshot about all the wasps that are buzzing around. And Poirot gets stung. Mind how you get on the bottom there, Poirot. That's wasp country. Nasty great nest of them just by that old tree. I've already been stung three times. What did you say, mon ami? I said, mind how you... Ah! Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, oh my God. I think that wasp was you, Frankie. Yeah, was you going in for the kiss? As I often told that my kisses are like wasp sting. <laughs> my lucky husband. Uh, yes, I wish. <laughs> but I'd be more like a bee. I would leave my stinger in there, and they could never get it out. That weird? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, but meanwhile, <laughs> uh, they 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 are chatting a bit, and this is where we find out a bit more about Molly. Claude and John's weird little love triangle thing because John basically spills the beans to Poirot and says oh yeah they used to be engaged but it's fine now everything's absolutely fine and there's no hard feelings and he's a really he's like one of my best mates it's all good sorry I thought you met him at the fete no chap in the clown outfit sculptor he has a studio not far from here he and Molly were engaged to be married about a year ago now but then well, one of those things. They drifted apart. We drifted closer together. The great thing is, there's absolutely no hard feelings. They're sitting and having tea in the sort of veranda of John's lovely house, and Poirot starts sniffing and just doesn't stop sniffing. It's quite perturbing to watch, actually, in a bit. <laughs> I guess he smells petrol, but whatever. He ends up at the water butt and looks in the water butt, and you can just about make out as a viewer the kind of oily pattern mm. on top, and he works out that the water butt is somehow full of petrol, which I really hope no one tries to put a cigarette out in it or anything. Because <laughs> Take a swig. Yeah, he puts on this for a bit. He and Hastings are leaving. He does, he, he does these little lists for him, doesn't he? Like, don't you? Yes. What do you think about this, this and this? And he said, mm. what about, uh, what do you think of the, the petrol in the water butt? You know, I wish that I could stop worrying. But the questions, they keep buzzing around my head like the wasps around the nest. The questions? Ask yourself, Hastings. The breaks of Mademoiselle Dean, why do they suddenly fail her only a few hours after they have been examined by Monsieur John Harrison? And Monsieur Claude Langton, why was he unable to destroy the nest of the wasps in the garden of Monsieur Harrison? And of most significance, Hastings, who put the petrol in the water butt and why? Petrol in the water butt? 
Sorry, Poirot, I'm afraid I failed to get the drift of all this. No, he's why do you suppose, Monsieur Claude Langton, he forces his attentions upon the Mademoiselle Dean with so much passion at the Garden Fete? The kiss, Hastings. The bright red makeup of the clown face that was still upon her lips. Oh, I see the cup. Yes, I've forgotten about that. He hasn't he been really sniffing is. butts like Poirot has all day. <laughs> <laughs> He's looking for coins. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe I that sniffing joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the wasp sting on his neck is causing him a bit of grief. So um, he asks where the nearest chemist is and is directed to the town. So he goes into the chemist and uh, asks if she has anything. And she says she can get him some iodine and disappears in the back. And he instantly tells Hastings to keep her busy. And then starts rifling through the desk and all the books <laughs> and all the locks on the desk. I love um, it. I have the misfortune to be stung by the wasp. In the garden of Monsieur John Harrison, it is on my neck. I'm afraid it is becoming quite so. I'll get you some colourless iodine to put on it. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind waiting a second. Pas de tout. Go through and talk to her. Hastings. Hmm? Talk to her. What about? Anything. There's a great Poirot burn when they're talking about the summer and why, why it should be outlawed. Captain Hastings, he wonders why I have a hatred for these crawling, buzzing things. And the reason is they're always trying to kill me. So after uh, he's had a nosy around uh, Miss Henderson, the chemist's stuff, they decide to go over and see Claude Langton. He asks where he asks the chemist where he lives and he because he's an artist, we find out. He's got a very jazzy front door. Uh, so they pop over and see him and they have a bit of a chat because... Poirot is convinced throughout this episode there's a real sense of kind of foreboding that's hanging over it with all the buzzing and all the kind of the sinister bubblings going on in the summery sun. Uh, but he's convinced that there's going to be a murder. Uh, and so he basically flat out kind of goes to Claude like, planning any murders? Something murderous going on? Because murders, I think there's going to be a murder. Uh, and Claude largely denies it. But they do spot a framed photo of Molly Dean in his, a signed photo, no less, uh, in his house. And he says, like, you know, we're all fine. We're totally over it. And they're like, why have you got this picture then, you, you massive creep? And he's like, okay, well, no, I'm not over it really, but uh, it's fine. Mademoiselle Molly Dean. And you and she were once engaged to be married, n'est-ce pas? Look. That was over a year ago. Water under the bridge. We're nothing more than good friends now. Indeed, Monsieur Langton. Absolutely stunning outfit. So, I still keep some of her old photos about the place. That doesn't mean I still... All right. What do you want me to say? I still love her, all right? Desperately. But I'm nothing to her anymore. That's just something I'm going to have to live with. It won't be easy, it'll be damned hard. But murder? Oh no, Mr. Poirot. I'm afraid you've got it all wrong this time. He says that was over a year ago. It's like the artistic temperament, eh? Like, takes yeah. precisely six months to get over someone you're engaged to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and still see all the time with her fiance. Like, that's totally normal. It was Science. a year ago. Already had a brake failure. So I think he's, he's onto something, isn't he? Like. Hmm. Something is going on. He definitely mentions just... that Hastings on the way out as well. Did you spot it on the shelf? You assume he's referring to the picture. It may, might have been something else you should have been watching out for there. Well, this time the evidence, it is too strong. What evidence? On the top shelf in the studio of Monsieur Claude Lantern. You did not see it, but 
I knew it would be there. Hastings is basically like, he thinks Poirot can't hear him. So he's like, oh, I don't know what Poirot's going on about. He's making mountains out of molehills. There's nothing here. And Poirot opens the bathroom door <laughs> straight into a load of hanging negatives and the rant begins. You ask me, all this fortune turning is going to his head. He's talking about investigating a murder now that hasn't even happened yet. Making a mountain out of a molehill, if you ask me. Than to even my own bathroom without walking into the hanging gardens of Babylon. Oh, sorry, they're probably dry by now. And I am not making the hills out of the mole mounts. Hills uh-huh. of the mole mounts. Which sounds like <laughs> a Superman cartoon title. I think that's brilliant. This is when Poirot says to Hastings that there is something going on, actually. The evidence is too strong because he spotted cyanide of, of the potassium on top of Claude's shelf. And he'd seen it in the records of the chemist, which is why he was rooting through Miss Henderson's stuff. He wasn't just being really nosy. It's uh, it, he makes very kind of there's a lot of poignancy in this episode that Poirot calls out about how Claude is so willing to kill a load of wasps and how bad that is. Yeah, yeah. I know it's well, metaphorical. He's prepared to fly, but he's prepared to kill thousands of wasps. But yeah, that's because wasps are dreadful. Yeah, yeah. I'd kill flies too. But... Yeah, flies, flies don't stab you. No. Very different, big difference between killing wasps and killing people, Poirot. Come on. <laughs> Unless it's the fly, like Jeff Goldblum's the fly. Then I would yeah. say no. you're allowed to kill a fly. Oh, Shoot, please. It's just such a good housemate scene, that that as well. Like, oh. Haven, you know, you mm. walk into the bathroom, you have, they've left their stuff all over the bathroom. The hanging gardens of Babylon. <laughs> like, da- <laughs> David Reddick wrote, he created One Foot in the Grave, didn't he, as well? And I yeah. think there is so much Victor Meldrew in Poirot in this episode. He's like, oh, I yeah. cannot believe this all the time. <laughs> I just cannot I believe do not, this. <laughs> I do not understand why this is happening. <laughs> Always says that. Yeah, and then we're off to the fashion show. Therese, have you ever been to a fashion show? Sadly not. Um, no? Wait, frantically rifling my memory. No, no, I remember correctly. I have not. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I have. I like this either. What? <laughs> I, I'm sure you have because you're very into your fashion, aren't you? I have. I used to a long, long time ago. Well, I worked as a fashion stylist for a short period of time and would, did you? yeah, like I did. Of yeah, a very long did. time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I, yeah, I used to style photo shoots and stuff. And uh, yeah, it was really fun. I used to go to, I've been to Fashion Week a couple of times, but obviously not anywhere, not an, as an important person by any stretch. It was normally if there was a spare seat at the back, I was allowed in to kind of watch <laughs> and stuff. But it's a lot of fun. It's very glamorous. I have to say the fashion shows of today are not like this one because, wow, that is a, a spectacle to behold, isn't it? Yeah, I like a narrator so in a fashion show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they're missing now we need that yeah. a lady and names of gowns uh i think are missing as well because god damn it if i don't want to buy the merry widow and wear that all day every day i think flesh wallet will be a great, great <laughs> <laughs> mole mounts <laughs> the hanging wearing... gardens of babylon combining yeah. <laughs> <laughs> enormous charm and distinction in fabric as well as in line the merry widow a delightful design beautifully molded in black crepe with clever white beading on the sleeves the cape of self-filled black chiffon simply floats around you as you walk firstly they're on the front row so Mm. basically anna wintour in this (laughs) Uh, having a wonderful time snapping all the models as they come down the catwalk and there's a lovely little moment where he's particularly enthusiastically snapping away with his flashbulb and 
Poirot just sort of puts his hand on the camera and throws it in the way you would for an old child. Calm it? yourself. <laughs> okay. I'm on. after the old nip slip, though, Poirot. He's flashing his bulb all over that catwalk, isn't he? He's getting it right out there. Yeah. He is bulbing. He's bulbing everywhere. So they're having a great time. The dresses are incredible. I think this is one of the things, that, the reason I love this episode, is it really mm. seems to lean in to what it knows its fans like. Like, the interiors are wonderful yeah. and the, the building they have the show in as well where they they kind of run into the lobby afterwards and they've got these giant silver palm trees it's just all stunning but the yeah the dresses are absolutely spectacular and mm. but then who should they see across the catwalk but <gasps> Skeletor with his <laughs> yes who uh, seems to go backstage then they have to run backstage and ha- hunt him down and there's fantastic scenes of um fires sort of hiding his face behind a program every time he walks past a changing model uh, and then he asks yes. one particular woman because he's a very polite, very polite. But then he asks one particular woman if he has, she has seen where Molly Dean has gone, mm. and she's sort of in makeup, so she sways in a sheet up to her chin. But then, see what play? We look for Mademoiselle Molly Dean. Well, she's finished. I think she went off with some gentleman. Oh, merci beaucoup, Mademoiselle. That dress. Sorry, I can't stop. She gets up, and there's something very distinctive about the dress because it catches Poirot's eye, and he makes a great thing out of it. Then, as you say, they chase down the stairs, uh, and they see Skeletor, and <laughs> Hastings manages to crack off a picture of this guy's face, and um, and then <laughs> they go back and get it developed, and it's beautifully zoomed in, isn't it? I mean. You know, good yeah, on you, camera of those days with your box brownie camera from 500 feet away. Yeah, and he's whipping it out. It's not like he holds it and he's sort of like, yeah, great. It's in focus. It's perfection. Mm, good old Hastings. The hobby's paying off. I think it's going to be a more than a two-week thing. He's not doing it in the next episode, is he? <laughs> so no, is it even? <laughs> Poirot was right. <laughs> yes, they chase after them. It's a, it's a very uh, as as fast as Poirot can mince. They're getting out of there as quickly as possible to chase after Molly Dean and this man, this mysterious man. And they, you see them drive away in a car together. And Molly Dean is sobbing in the car. We see she's very upset and it's very concerning. And that, that's the end of that scene. She goes off. Quick, Hastings, your camera. Who is the mysterious Skeletor? We still don't know. We still don't know um, yet. I said, but now he's got Molly. What's going on? He has, yeah. And she's crying. So um, they take the photo to the most logical person in the world, Jap, who obviously has memorised every face in London. He's basically, you know, Google faces, (laughs) says I don't recognise him. Google image search. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know him, therefore he can't really be. You sound sceptical, as if Jap of the Yard wouldn't be capable of this. Come on, this is... Very true. And also that they're sitting there um, in his convalescent home and they're asking all the stuff and they get up to leave and he says, thanks for the chocolates. And then you realise that the chocolates Hastings has been eating throughout this whole scene. (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. Thanks for the chocolates. That mm-hmm. blue, the dress that she's wearing when she stands up, I think is one of my favourite ones in mm. the episode, possibly in the whole show. It's, mm. it's just such a visual thing where mm. it's, it's basically, have you been watching? Have yeah, you have you been paying attention? Have this you dismissed yeah. the dress because you think it's girly? No, boom. <laughs> I, I'm sort of like, I'm, I really want to like talk more about every single scene, but I think, mm-hmm. the, I think the greatest thing about this episode is that it's almost like there's a hidden episode. 
just beneath the yeah. surface that you don't know you're watching until Poirot explains everything at the end. It's very clever. So it is. Jap is leaving the hospital uh, to be picked up by Mrs. Jap, and he bumps into someone in the way into the lift. Only coming out of the lift is Skullator himself, mm. and... Jap doesn't recognise him at first, does he? But then realises where he's seen that face before in Poirot's photograph. So, um, Devonshire Street. Take us there, Frankie. Well, that, that, um, the Jap phones, you say, phones Poirot tells him about, uh, seeing the man. And then Devonshire Street is, is really in his mind for some reason, Poirot, after the call. So then he looks up the address book. <laughs> While he's looking up, Hastings is just watching him with a book in front of him. Oh, I know it's an audio podcast, but and it's an audio <laughs> medium. But just that visual of him just watching as Poirot kind of like rushes about and solves it is so so perfectly Hastings. Uh, but he's <laughs> he suddenly has his eureka moment, enfin, and he stuffs the photos in his pocket and he's like, right, I gotta go. And Hastings is like, where, where are you going? Is there anything for me to do? Uh, and as he's leaving, he says, actually, yes, get me get me some washing soda as he's leaving. Uh, and then he departs and heads straight over to John's house. John is once more like, futilely trying to kill the wasps with... Uh, he must know it's di- diluted. I don't know why he's bothering. He's just swinging his hose around the garden. He's swinging isn't he? his hose around <laughs> um, Not afraid of being stunned, funnily enough. No. And uh, I think Cora just asks him, like, what's, what's going on? Are you all right? Is everything okay? Is Molly around? And he says, no, 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 she's just upstairs with a, a migraine must have come on as, mm. as part of the show because modelling is very stressful. Cora, what a pleasant surprise. Bonjour, Monsieur Harrison. Mademoiselle Molly Dean, she's not with you this afternoon? Molly, she's inside. Got a migraine or something. Seems to have come on after the show last night. I expect she'll be fine. And Monsieur Claude Langton... At what time is he due to arrive to destroy your nest of wasps? 7.30, he said. I imagine he'll be on time. On time? The man whose dearest love you stole away with? He comes here tonight, to the home of his rival, armed with a deadly poison. (laughs) Just what are you suggesting? The Claude Langton might try... Good God, this is England. Jealous suitors don't go around murdering people. Besides, Claude Langton wouldn't have had a fly. No. Yet even now he prepares to take the lives of several thousand wasps. There, by the root of the tree. The wasps returning home, placid at the end of the day. In one hour and a half there will be the total destruction and they know it not. For the wasps, there is no Hercule Poirot to warn them. He checks if Claude is still coming around to kill the wasps and John says he is. And he says, oh, do you mind if I come and watch? Because I guess that's what had to happen before TV. You just went to watch your friends kill pests. <laughs> <laughs> and John agrees to this and he sort of goes off again. I don't know where he goes for the intervening couple of hours, drives around the block. He does a little walk. He yeah, a little walk. Yeah. John tells Poirot that Claude is coming back at 7.30, so he's very, you know, don't come back till then, please. So he's got a few hours, so Poirot's off for a walk then claude is at the pub waiting for his allotted time to come to the house to kill the wasps having a nice pint in his cravat um and while he's outside at the pub someone's only letting themselves into his house because we see the lock being picked and we see these gloved hands going through the house and we see the picture of molly on his 
shelf and there's a jar of cyanide in front of the picture and that is picked up and obviously looked at by the intruder into the house oh, i'm gonna say we're gonna have to probably leave it there because the denouement happens straight away after that but mm. um yeah, so if you want to go away and solve it, although it's a bit, bit of a hard one to solve because nothing has really taken place yet. But um, yeah, that's 38 and a half minutes. You'll need to pause it. Therese, what do you think of this episode? We always like give the episode a 10 because production design fabulousness is always off the charts. But in terms of mystery, in terms of story, in terms of everything else, what would you reckon? Oh, it's, I think it's probably 10s across the board. Definitely production i think you mentioned direction earlier and i think this one i don't know who directed it but then it just seems to try and do some different things like there's some really nice moments where you get a little bit of like over the shoulder camera in whitehaven so that you get the kind of housemate beef being exacerbated by this slightly more intimate camera work um obviously there are the the costumes and the interiors are off the charts so all of tens for all of that the fact that it's a completely different mystery as well, like Poirot says throughout that he's trying to solve something before it happens, which I don't mm. think he does elsewhere. I think this is the only one. Later on, but mm. yeah. Yeah? Okay, yeah. Yeah. This is the first one so far, so that gives it a completely different flavour as well. And you're right, it's hard to solve yourself because you are not really noticing the same things. Yeah. Or rather, you could notice the same things Poirot does, but let's face it, you don't because you're not Poirot. <laughs> Also, that really stung. <laughs> what do you think, Adam? Well, I I initially marked this one as a nine, but then as I rewatched it last night, I thought actually this is probably the best episode so far of all yeah. the seasons. Like I love Problem at Sea. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think it's a fabulous mystery and I really love the dream as I said it's one of the ones that I, I always remember and return to quite often but I think this one is just especially clever for starters it's impeccably performed by everyone and I don't think it's a solvable thing but you just kind of feel like something's up all the way through and you just have to take Poirot's word for it but it does a really good job of like filling you with dread and it has David Renwick's fingerprints all over it and his layering of clues is as formidable as ever it's just very pregnant with tension and i really respect the writing of it and uh, when poirot Mm. lays it all out on the table which he will do in the next couple of scenes you get a sense of what a genius piece of writing this was because the short story itself is not told this way Mm. the next scene we're about to see is basically the short story everything we've seen up until now is sort of relayed by poirot and it's it's fun to read, but this just completely unravels it and puts it back together in a more interesting way. What and... to do with the source material is amazing, mm. and I think that's why it's an example of the show at its absolute best. Because it's... David Renner, is, 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 I mean, obviously he's respected amongst TV aficionados and other writers and producers and stuff, and, and fans like us see his name and go, this is going to yeah. be a good one. But if you're a fan of Jonathan Creek or One Foot in the Grave's smarter moments, aside from the broad comedy and the Poirot episodes he's done, this guy is like absolute master of TV writing. So I think this one is a masterpiece. I think it's definitely 10 out of 10. I give it more than 10 out of 10 if I could. I think it's really unforgettable. And I think it's a real triumph, not just for Poirot, but as a piece of expertly crafted television, I think it's unsurpassed. I think it's the best one so far. And I think all the better for being a slight the quieter setup as well like you don't go into it expecting it to be the best it's Mm. not based on one of the big famous stories the opening isn't kind of some big jazzy murderous set piece it really has to grow on you and boy does it Mm. as well we can't talk about it just yet because we haven't got to the new one but it finishes on 
a note that is like every kind of emotion wraps into one. It's so yeah. perfect. It's absolutely brilliant. And it feels like nothing's really happened as well yet in the episode. It's just, it's all set up and it's all this and it's all that. But as I said earlier on, it's like watching two stories, but you just don't know you're watching the second story at the moment. When Poirot lays it out, it's incredibly clever. Frankie, what do you think? Yeah, I quite, I quite liked it. <laughs> it's a four. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, no, obviously, I was buzzing to talk about this one because it is, it's that wonderful slow burn of tension throughout that gets you. Obviously, there's brilliant comedic relief throughout with the, the classic Renwick kind of Poirot, Hastings, odd couple moments of the, uh, around the, around Whitehaven together. But this story is so complex and so layered, as you say, and so wrought with emotion. Like, we're not going to talk talk about the ending yet but when you get there it's the most spectacular gut punch you could possibly get and it really pulls on that theme that I think David Suchet's Poirot in particular really embodies is that the the complexity of the human condition and emotion and morality it's something that his Poirot plays with a lot and it irks him a lot about right and wrong and it really this one is full of various shades of what's right what's wrong and and the emotions that come with that so i think it is as you say it's a masterpiece and the way that they've planted little seeds throughout like you said therese like there's so many little bits you're like oh god of course when he explains it at the end you're like that's why that was significant and that's why that was significant it's a real yeah visual feast as well as just stunningly written and directed so yeah i quite liked it too i'm gonna give it a 10 as well <laughs> that is 30 yeah, that, that is like whoa that's cool hmm well I done, very guys. Now they've got. <laughs> now they're pleased. Now they're pleased. <laughs> <laughs> now yeah, um... I can retire. <laughs> I think it just taps into something that I just particularly love, which is pathos. I love, but I love as well learning and getting to know characters without feeling like it's being force-fed to me. Like yeah. when you get to the end of this episode, I want to talk about the last couple of minutes, but. The last scene between Poirot and another character just goes to show how much I've gotten to know this other certain character and I didn't really yeah. feel like it was being kicked into me. So, no. um, yeah, I just think it's, I think it's a masterpiece. Anyway, I think everyone's probably screaming at us to get on with it. So, um, yeah, shall shut we up. Get on with it? Stop <laughs> waxing lyrical and bloody talk about the ending. <laughs> yes, we should. By all means, if you want to go away and sort of re-watch the episode up until this point and see if you can spot what's happening then uh, by all means do so. 33 and a half minutes is where you'll need to pause it. But um, if not, then join us after the musical sting. We'll talk all about the denouement with Therese. Musical sting. Oh. <laughs> There's a sting in the Look tail. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Disgusting. Behave yourself. I know it's wasps. You didn't have that one. That was good. <laughs> Bonjour, everyone. Are we ready to solve? Well, this one's a tricky one, isn't there? Because there's not really a solve and there's not really a who did it moment that we've had in previous episodes. But uh, we do find out what, what the hell's been going on. So, Therese, what do we come back to when Poirot returns to see John at the house? Oh, we come back to quite a worrying scene. So he walks up the garden and we just see John sitting with his back to him, very still in his garden chair under the veranda. And suddenly all the memories of the, the loosened brakes and the cyanide and the poison book all come flooding back into your head. And you go, oh, my God, he's not done it. He's yeah. not done it. He's failed. Um, and then Poirot slowly approaches 
and sort of taps John on the shoulder and we realize John is alive, which is a relief. <laughs> uh, and then Poirot basically proceeds to explain to John exactly what has been happening over the last year, really, and explains to John and happily to us what John's plan was in all of this. It is no use, mon ami, I know everything. I know, just as you knew, that the love affair between Mademoiselle Dean and Monsieur Claude Langton is far from being over as they claimed. And during the past few weeks, your fiancée, she has been drifting back to her old love, is that not so? In public, she pretends to reject him. But in private, the old flames they are being rekindled. Of course, there is nothing wrong with the brakes of her car. You have already checked them. Quite deliberately, Mademoiselle Dean, she drives the car into the tree in order to spend two days away from you. Two days which she will spend in the company of Monsieur Claude Langton. Because she knows it will break your heart, she cannot bring herself to reveal to you her secret affair. But the signs are there for those who will see. In the house of Monsieur Claude Langton, there is a photograph of his former sweetheart. He tells to me that his photograph, it is an old one, and that she now no longer cares for him. But he lies. It has to be recently taken. Because in the photograph she is wearing the fashion modern, which a few months ago would not even have been designed. The camera, it never lies, yes? And when I see your face in a moment unguarded, I see in it a deep, deep hatred. I have seen that look before, my friend. I know to what lengths he can drive a man. This evening you tell me that Monsieur Claude Langton is due to arrive at 7.30, but that is not true. He was coming earlier than that. That's why she was in such a state when she came here. But it was only when Claude arrived that she right. told me how much she knew. Molly, what is it? <laughs> I'm sorry, John. It's... You see, I know. Dr. Belvedere, last night he told me everything. I see. John, I'm so, so sorry. You're not sorry. You're not sorry at all, either of you. Get out. Out of here and out of my life. What's left of it? Go on, Langton, take her. It's what you've always wanted. What you've always planned. Well, take her and get out! When I saw the petrol in the water bat? Because that was the first stage in your plan, was it not? When Monsieur Claude Langton, he comes around to destroy the nest of wasps with a syringe of petrol, he fails. Because you have emptied most of the contents of the can into the water bath and then filled the can with the plain tap water. You know that when Monsieur Langton comes back, it will be with a cyanide. The cyanide that you will use for murder. Murder? Suicide? Murder! The death that you planned for yourself was to be quick and easy. But the death that you planned for Monsieur Claude Langton was the worst death that any man can die. He bought the poison. His name is there in the book. 
After he has left your house, you are found dead, the cyanide in your cup, and Monsieur Claude Langton, he hangs. That was your plan, was it not, Monsieur? A few minutes from now, it'll all be over. I do not think so, my friend. It is most unusual for a man to die from swallowing the washing soda. So it turns out Claude wasn't actually all right with John taking his fiance. And it, as it turns out, neither was said fiance. So Molly has gone back to Claude. They've been having an affair for some months. That's what the, the car crash was about. Molly faked it so that she could have a few days off with Claude. Um, and John has decided he's not going to stand for this. And separately, turns out that Skulator was John's doctor. And John is a very sick man. And he only has possibly two months to live, which is why he's been underlining the 1st of October again and again and again in his diary. And he's decided his act of uh, posthumous revenge will be to get Claude framed for his own murder. So he diluted the petrol in, the, in Claude's hose so that he couldn't kill the wasp with it. So he would have to go and buy potassium cyanide, thereby putting his name in the poison book. He then invites Claude round to use the cyanide to kill the wasps. While that's happening, he steals some of the cyanide and puts it in his own teacup. His plan being to drink the poison tea at once, end his own life on his own terms, so he doesn't have to die. I don't think we know what he's got, but he no. might a brain tumour or something. The evidence will be left with, he'll be dead, Claude will have bought cyanide, have left him at his house. He'll be dead shortly afterwards. Claude now gets John's fiance, and so the evidence will be there enough to get him hanged for his own murder. And it's incredibly dark, like as a plan, it's really quite brutal and out of nowhere from we said has been an episode where not much has seemingly happened. Like for it to suddenly be revealed that this was what has been going on beneath the surface of the fairs and the fashion shows is quite a lot. Obviously, where I was like five steps ahead of him the whole time. And I like to think Hastings saved the day by buying the washing soda. He was the mysterious gloved hand in Claude's house <laughs> for washing soda. So John has put washing soda into his cup and drunk that and is not going to die and is therefore not going to frame Claude. Starts foaming at the mouth a little bit. I wish he had. <laughs> <laughs> Some light bubbles. He wouldn't no. just be sitting there calmly in his chair if he'd done that. I feel like he'd yeah. on the toilet. What can you do? Well, crucially, when um, Poirot explains that John hasn't, in fact poisoned himself. John is not angry with Poirot at all. He's actually relieved and Poirot says Mon ami, you are a man who is dying. You have lost the girl you love. But there is one thing that you are not. You are not a murderer deep down within your heart. I don't even want to kill the wasps anymore. Fact is I've become quite used to them. It ends on a beautifully poignant but still quite dark moment. And, um, you know, yeah. John ha John's plan has not succeeded, but he will die in a matter of eight weeks or so. He's lost Molly Dean. So it's really, it's really quite moving that he wants to go out on his own terms, failed and is actually quite relieved about the fact that he's mm. failed and now is going to see out his last two months of life alone. Oh, it's so devastating, isn't it? And as you say, it's that, it's that really, it's that really difficult, again, the moral thing of murder is bad. We know it's bad. And it's obviously the act of a very desperate man who's lost the woman that he loves to this rival. And he wanted to get this last bit of revenge, but really he didn't. That came obviously from a real pace of sadness and of betrayal that he felt with that has been simmering throughout this episode we've talked about many times and encouraged him to do this very 
awful thing we're basically sending an innocent man to be hung likely if he was found guilty for murdering john claude would have likely been sent to the gallows for it so it's very sinister but you can kind of understand it not not that i condone murder i don't condone murder i feel like i have to say that a lot um i don't do that but you you see you see what you're left with when you strip away all of the horrible darkness and the and the, the plotting that's been going on it's just a very sad desperate man that didn't really even mean what he was doing, like you said. And he's so relieved that Poirot comes in. And the end, I mean, I don't want to skip to the end bit just yet because I want to hear what you guys think first, but there's that very end line of the episode that's just, Mm. it sums it up perfectly. And you can really tell that he sincerely means it. He did not really want Claude to die. Mm. And it was just a last, I guess, clinging on for something, some sort of pride perhaps, and some sort of little bit of ego left to think I may be dying, but I'm not going out like this and trying to take control of a situation. So yeah, it's God, I was really sad after I watched it yesterday and I was a bit kind of down for like a good hour afterwards. I was like, oh man, this is a heavy one. In 44 minutes, you've had comedy and you've had like the whole Jap thing and Hastings with his camera and Poirot being Victor Meldrew and Miss Lemon at her fitness class and yet all the way through as well you've been watching this situation unfold to have all of those elements in a 44 minute teleplay mm. is quite incredible of writing it's I mean and, it, and I have to say it's not the short story begins with Poirot turning up at this end scene and talking to John about everything that's happened over the past year and explaining the resolutions kind of the same but the way the TV show handles it is I think it's a definite improvement on the short story and which was already great so yeah it's a real mini masterpiece I, I think it's one of the well definitely one of the strongest Poirot episodes of, of the lot. it's a real advert for what adaptation of a book can do as well it's not yeah. seeing the gaps in it and deciding to fill those with something much more interesting than it needed to do really anytime you adapt anything it shouldn't just be a straight xerox of it anyway it should be how do we take best advantage of the medium we're taking it to like like kenneth branner's doing for this (laughs) oh you bro okay that's it now now your stinger's out is it that's it okay (laughs) unbelievable we're having such a nice deep conversation and you ruined it But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a stunning piece of work, truly. And it's one of those ones where I hadn't seen this one for a really long time either. So revisiting it was a, was a real pleasure. And then it's just, this one's going to stay with me for a while. I don't know if you guys feel that way. I feel like this one is going to be on my mind for a while now. And I'm going to think of it as kind of the bar that we yeah, measure future episodes to. It is to. the gold standard, I think. This and Problem at Sea, the absolute jewels yeah. in the crown. You, uh, you came on for a good one, Therese. She chose oh, well. I screeched in there. I didn't realise quite how close you were to it. We have to just talk about the very last moment now. Adam, take it away. I will let John and Poirot take it away. Stop by again, won't you, before? Before very long, my name. And Poirot, I... Thank God you came. Yeah, and I mean, we get the gif. It's the gif moment, isn't it? It's the one that everyone yeah. does on Twitter. Him, yeah. I use it all, all, all the time, that gif. It's one of the only ones I didn't make that I use all the time. <laughs> <laughs> You've done the world a great service. Yeah, it's great. It's it's just a really fantastic, you know, it's, it's almost like he's not speaking from the brain, he's speaking from his soul in that moment. I just I can't get over how glad I am that you exist in the world and stop me from I don't believe it. <laughs> I cannot quite believe this. <laughs> 
<laughs> I will never understand this. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh boy. Wow. Well, what a what an episode. What a journey. Therese, thank you so much for coming on and hanging out with us and chatting chatting about this with us. Oh, thank you very much for letting me. It's been really good fun. Yeah. Oh, and I good. didn't even go on my rant about how John should have known within 20 seconds that he hadn't drunk something. Sure, sure, please do. <laughs> There's still time. I mean, that's it, really. John should have known within 20 seconds that he hadn't drunk something. I know, because he wasn't dead. Wow. <laughs> Slow burning cyanide. As I said, yeah. I thought maybe the soap uh, bubbles around his mouth might have been a clue as well, but no, not. That, yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I would have thought, like you know, the fact that they stayed crunchy. Something very fairy liquid. His mouth smelt, the, the fact his mouth smelt laundry fresh. <laughs> the fact that bubbles now come out when he sneezes and. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is crazy, even though the whole thing is like so amazing, there are a few little moments where you're just like oh come on this is ridiculous and you're just mm-hmm. the, the, the yeah. urge to pick them apart is strong but you you sort of forgive it everything because it's yeah. beautiful it's brilliant yeah. and hey therese where can people find you online to follow you because i follow you on x question mark whatever the hell it's called let's, these days let's not call it that no no <laughs> twitter uh, i'm on twitter i'm on um t underscore kettle and i mainly talk about my books uh, other people's books i retweet stuff with cats in it um you can also find us at raven books if we're allowed to plug yeah we've got some really good stuff coming up in the next few years as we do oh you really do yeah i'm really excited yeah please check us out if you like your murders jaunty we sometimes say we're into jaunty murder jaunty is satisfying jaunty it's the best kind of murder definitely And not to plug my other podcast, but I have a few of your authors coming on as guests in the very near future, which I'm very excited about. So thank you. This is not as nepotistic as it sounds, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, Frankie and I's book will be published in February in 2024. You're coincidentally, of course. It's a jaunty murder. It's a jaunty murder cookbook. Yes. (laughs) Oh, boy. And Mm. hey, Adam. Where can people find us online? <laughs> oh, um, well, you can follow us at Labours Hercule. Close enough, yeah. yeah. Just Labours of Hercule <laughs> podcast on Twitter and Threads and Instagram. And if you want to email us, it's bonjour at thelabourshercule.com. Frankie, what's the next episode? I knew you were about to ask me ah! that and I have not prepared it. God I know. Damn it. <laughs> uh, I'll do you. Oh, yeah. well, hey, Adam, why don't you answer that question? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you smug. That- <laughs> um, it's tragedy at Marston Manor. Next, uh, which oh. is, um, we talk about spooky ones. This one, uh, yeah, it's proper horror film, isn't it? So can't wait to see this one again. Really, yeah, really scared me actually. Really scared me when I watched this one the first time. Tender age of about thirteen years old. I was like, tender age of thirty-five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so back when the uh, episodes were being written by Christy herself. Yes. <laughs> not 1935 I meant you were 35 that's what I meant yeah back then. oh I see because you're old got yes. it very funny older than those trees. that's how he knows about the television play he was there <laughs> a, I saw it captured it on my crystal set yes. <laughs> right, well we'll be back very soon then with the haunting of Marsden Manor no nope. tragedy of Marsden <laughs> you made it spooky and I got confused <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's that haunting of Venice bullshit 
that's clouded my brain. I've never and, heard um, of that, wasn't it? Let's not speak any more of that. But yeah, okay. just one last time. Thank you, Therese, for coming on. And it's been such a pleasure. And we'll be back very soon with another episode, I guess. Thanks, Therese. Do come back. Well, you may come to regret that, but yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better, we better block the accounts. <laughs> we'll edit that bit out and say it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> We're not at home. <laughs> Well, until next time then, mon ami. Au revoir. If you'd like to keep up to date with what we're doing or get in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Labours Hercule. We're also on Instagram if you like pictures at Labours of Hercule. And if you were born in the 1920s yourself, then you can be all old fashioned and email us at bonjour at thelaboursofhercule.com. That's it from us. See you next time. Au revoir, mes amis. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.